Welcome to the Questions for the Sages podcast. I'm Michael Scherer. Today I spoke with Bhakta Swanson, who used to live on the temple grounds in the 1970s. We had a wide-ranging conversation, and I appreciate that he agreed to be interviewed. You can hear the Questions for the Sages podcast on questionsforthesages.com, the Questions for the Sages Facebook page, iTunes, and on YouTube. Thanks to the Hare Krishna community of Potomac, Maryland, for making this podcast possible. Welcome to Questions for the Sages, a podcast from the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Michael Scherer, and today I'm speaking with Bhakta Swanson. Um, Bhakta Swanson, who are you? <laughs> I, you know, uh, I was just saying how we're sitting in this room. This is like, uh, this is the, one of the main offices that uh, we used to always come to, the seated temple president, you know, when I first started to live here. You started so to I, live here? Yeah, yeah. To that live was where? way back in, boy, that was like the late 70s. Like, wait, 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 wait. Okay. Well, let's, um, now I had no idea. You lived on the temple grounds in the yeah. 1970s? Yes. Really? Yes. Well, how did that happen? You know, I came with some of my uh, God brothers from Syracuse. I was going to school in Syracuse. And, you know, when we left school and I came down here, I said I was going to join the, you know, devotees because I had been reading the Back to Godheads and Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita the whole time I was going through college. And so it was kind of like almost like if you went decided to join the army, you know, so it's like came down here, joined the temple. Um, you know, that was a time when they were more open to people just coming in and participating and they had Bakta programs. They had Bakta programs now, but it's not the same as it was before. Like before, if we went out and preached to somebody and they said they wanted to become Krishna conscious, become a devotee, we were trying to get them to come back to the temple and join and start right away. You know, like no yeah. hesitation. So, uh, you know, that was that was really uh, the beginning of me getting to know about the deity worship and the Shema Bhavatam. Some of the five wait, 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 pillars. Wait, wait. Yeah, I think we're jumping okay, in. Jumping, ahead, jumping yeah. in midstream because okay. how did you mm -hmm. how did you encounter? Oh, another good question. Another good question. When I was up in um, Syracuse, I was walking down the street. Now, I already had books, right? I already had Prabhupada's book. And where'd you get those? Um, that's a good question. Who gave me... Oh, I had a teacher, martial arts teacher, that gave me my first Bhagavad Gita. And that was the really, really nice, unabridged one that Prabhupada put out in the beginning. Uh-huh. Yeah, he gave me that. Because when he first met me, that's what he said when I came through the door of his house. He said, oh, you're like that Ramakrishna energy. I have something for you. And he gave me the Bhagavad Gita, so... And then, you know, through that, I became interested in finding out more. So I started to get the Back to Godheads. Okay. And Okay, so I've been reading those all through school. I used to stay up, like, 
three, four, five in the morning reading Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita. I used to get upset if I had to stop to even go to the bathroom. Because I was like, man, this is just so much nectar and everything in here is the truth, even though I don't fully understand all of it. Like some of the things were just so detailed and so deep, but you could tell that it was the truth, right? So it was like just absorbing myself to try to understand what he was teaching. And um, I realize now, you know, like looking back in terms of that whole, you know, story arc of your development as a devotee, that's when I was developing what they call um, Shastra Shraddha Mai. From reading the scriptures, there's actually an energy of faith that you receive through reading the scriptures. And all of my teachers always would tell me, yeah, you're more into the scriptural part of it. Like most people would be into like what works for them. Or what's yeah, for them. Yeah. But me, if they could show me where that was in the scriptures or they could show me where that was a verse, that was more meat for me that I could yeah. like, you know, was tap right your, into. Your, um, you know, um, there's a guy, famous uh, educator named Gardner who talks about multiple intelligences. Right. Some people learn better visually. Some people learn by listening. Some people have to do something in order for it to sink I know exactly in. what you mean. But it sounds like you're sort of, you're a reader. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, and that's another thing too was, you know, I was trained when I was a little kid, like, trying to remember what grade that was. Uh, Probably like just the beginning of junior high school, mm-hmm. I was trained in super learning techniques, oh, which, yeah? which are which are heavily focused on speed reading for comprehension. Yeah, you know, so I was learning in the beginning how to really meditate on the scriptures because, like, I don't know if you ever do slokas or do. Uh, Sahasranams or different. What's a Sahasranam? A thousand names of oh. Vishnu, thousand names of Krishna, thousand names of Lord Chaitanya. They have, and then each of the names of the Lord is representative of a pastime of the Lord. Right, right. And certain qualities. It's and descriptive. Exactly. Somehow. And you know, the same, the same technique that you're using when you're chanting those is very much like the super learning. That's something that I, you know, realized as I started to get into the sloka chanting that, um, yeah, this is like a super learning technique. And within those words and those mantras are energy, knowledge, and um, evocation. Mm-hmm. So you bring things into existence. And the reason why I like to read the Puranas. Now, for me, you know, Prabhupada, he didn't like this word. But, I, you know, I understand. He didn't like, like what? He didn't like this word, mythology. Oh, mythology. Yeah, okay. he didn't like that word because, you know, I guess it's the way it's been bastardized and used. But, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, he didn't like the idea that they were implying that the story was not real. But that's not necessarily the definition of myth. Myth does not necessarily mean that it's not real. And that the one part about the Puranas and a lot of what I'm calling, quote unquote, please forgive me, Indian mythology, Uh 
is that you read the story and it transforms you. Hmm. You're a different person at the end of the story. You've taken the hero's journey and you've now realized you've metamorphosized like a butterfly and you see the world differently. And like most philosophy, philosophy is going to give you like a template or a way of living your life. You know, so when you know, like you hear about a uh, hundred thousand, thousand day, like one day of Brahma is a hundred thousand years and get to all those different relative things. They're giving you these different perspectives. But let me just mention some books. Yoga Vashista. Um, that's a good piranha. Even though a lot of impersonalists use that one. The reason is because it's Ram and his guru Vashista. So look, how could that ever be wrong? You know, if it's Ram and his guru Vashista, right? But yeah, he's telling them about all these different lifetimes. And it even goes back to, I don't know if you ever come across Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm, sure. See, do you know that there have been a lot of the most influential authors down through history read that book and it changed them? Arabian Nights and the Puranas and the Yoga Vashista, it gives you a different framework perspective on time. And existence. Mm. But the reason I'm mentioning these is because in all three of these texts, like Yoga Vashista, um, uh, what's the other one that was mentioned? Arabian Nights, and it's one other one. The Piranhas. The Piranhas, yeah. Um, they talk about, like in Arabian Nights, I don't know if you remember the story about the guy that woke up and he was a king. And then after he woke up and he was a king, he woke up again and he was a beggar. And he kept on going back and forth. And same thing in Yoga Vasista. Yoga Vasista covers this man going through these different time periods and within his life to show you like samsara. And what I always say about all of samsara these, is samsara is like the repeated cycle of birth and death. Uh-huh. You know, that takes place, the wheel of karma, where we keep on being reincarnated to finish up some karmic debt that we had from the past I guess it's a simple way of saying it but um, it was something I was going to tell you about that and well okay. you were reading yeah. these intensely yes. and, and you were particularly reading the Bhagavad Gita as it is yes intensely yes um, because your martial arts teacher gave you the book right wow that was see I never put those two things together right it's so funny you say that because I think about, I don't know if you know this guy, he's, he's a champ now in the, uh-huh. all these different weight divisions named Thurman. Um, doesn't ring a bell. What's, any, is anyway, he a boxer? Is he's he a boxer. And he's like, he's probably like 29 and oh okay. now undefeated. Okay. And he, he, he attributes his continuous victory and undefeatableness to the fact that he reads the Bhagavad Gita every day. Really? And you know when like, I when I heard Thurgood? Thurman. Thurman. And and you know, the reason why that really kinda hit me is because now this is gonna really get esoteric for you. Okay. You know when I was studying with Art of Living, I've studied with a lot of the different spiritual groups because I have friends in a lot of different groups and I know that you need to understand them in order to be able to preach, to teach them and learn from them. Yeah. So when I was studying with the art of living, 
you know, one of the conversations we had with Ravi Shankar, he was saying that he didn't really think about it like Gita was that high. Yeah. That he thought that maybe Yoga Vashista and some of these other books was that high. And his explanation for the reason why was he said that look at where it took place. That was his whole basis for that, right? Like he said, the battlefield, that's passion and ignorance, you know, that environment. Whereas like when you look at Yoga Vashista, where Vashista is in the... Now, I personally am not familiar with Yoga Vashista. Yeah, yeah, he's talking to Ram and they're like in the king's chambers. Okay. And he's inquiring, like like you're the king and you have your guru as your advisor. Right. And he's coming to you and the kingdom is all cool and everything is paid for, no problems. That's what he's learning. He's learning in that condition. Versus Arjuna on the battlefield. Yeah. I always say Who doesn't my, even want to be there? I always say I had this poem. Um they raced, you know, to the middle of two opposing armies yeah. and Krishna and Arjuna still remain charming. You know, the Lord was still with words. That's what I always say to people. Whenever they say to me, something didn't go right, it didn't turn out right, people, I say, you probably said the wrong thing. Because to me, Krishna is like an example of how you can change everything just by saying the right thing. So he changed all of those circumstances you know, on the battlefield, just by what he was saying to Arjuna, changed our lives. And that's like the Lord coming and doing his work. You know, he talks about how I didn't do my work. I'm not bound by any of this. But if I didn't do my work, the whole thing, the whole universe, everything would fall into a dharma, you know, would fall apart, right? So the Lord comes and he does his work of performing these wonderful pastimes. And the only reason that Krishna comes to perform those pastimes is to try to attract us to the spiritual world. And so I wanted to say about that evolution in my study. Okay. When I originally was studying all of this stuff, I was studying this stuff to know it, to understand it, to be able to explain it to other people. This, yeah, this wasn't a passing interest. This, but this then, somehow seized your attention, right? But then I got to a point now where I am now where the only reason I'm reading the books now is to attract me back to the spiritual world. Okay. You know, to hear about home, to know where I'm going, to prepare myself to be in that atmosphere and consciousness. Whereas before, I was trying to actually understand all of the little intricacies, and all the little wisdom stories that might be there. But when it comes to like, the Shramad Bhavatam, that book and the Bhagavad Gita are like the main guideposts for the devotees, you know, along with the teachings of the six Goswamis. Mm-hmm. That's something that's very special too that I, I want to mention here that I think is relevant for everyone to know. And that is that we're not just understanding Krishna and Radha and the spiritual world relationships through Bhagavad Gita and Shrimad Bhavatam, we're understanding through the teachings of the six Goswamis. And that's very important distinction because what they're doing is back to what we have been saying earlier about Krishna carrying 
what you lack, right? And I was saying that's the association of uh, Lord Chaitanya's associates, the, all the Gora Bhaktas, right? They're uh, giving us the devotion. They're supplementing. When Krishna said in Bhagavad Gita, as they surrender unto me, I reward them accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, a lot of people would think, okay, well, that's all I got to do. But see, the surrender that he's talking about, we fall so far short of that. So then, well, what's our chance? Our chance is Lord Chaitanya. Our chance is the praying that we get from the Panchatattva, from Lord Chaitanya, through praying to and them. what's the Panchatattva? Um... Lord Chaitanya, when he came, that incarnation, kind of like a combined form of Radha and Krishna, he was in Radha's mood, was Krishna himself coming here to experience as a devotee. He also came in these other four features that are aspects of the divine, like in the form of the avatar, in the form of the devotee of God in the form of the actual devotional energy of God. Um, this, these are the Panchatana. That, yeah, that's what each one of them is representing. And it's because so much mercy came with Lord Chaitanya. You know, it's a verse that says that when Krishna, you know, left with his whole entourage mm -hmm. from Krishna Leela, he went back to the spiritual world with his whole entourage. He also left himself here as the Bhagavad Gita, the Shema Bhavatam, and the Holy Name. Mm -hmm. And that the people that are really smart, you know, to have enough made have enough brain stuff, mm -hmm. you know, your brain hasn't been totally deteriorated, will we'll take... By Mountain Dew. Right. <laughs> exactly. They have so many things just to kidding. lobotomize you, right? Yeah. But um, okay, Pause here. I, thank you for letting me ramble on. I was oh yeah yeah on. yeah. No, I appreciate it. Um, you you got intensely into the reading, right? You came across devotees in Syracuse. Were they I know, singing right, we, in the street? I know, I know. Right, you bringing me right to the part of the story that I stopped off and went on a tangent. So I had gotten Prabhupada's books. So I already knew about the devotees, right? So, don't ask me why I act like this. This is shameful. I'm coming what? down. I'm coming oh, okay. down one of the main streets in Syracuse. It's called M Street, just like M Street in Georgetown. Okay. They have an M Street in Syracuse, and that's like the main little, you know, touristy. You know, where all the college students would come. You know, to like get away from the university, but it was right near the university. So as I'm walking down the street, I saw a devotee, and I could tell. That it was a devotee because I don't know if you've ever seen the devotees wear wigs. I no, I'm not really familiar with this. Yeah, the devotees will have wigs on, even though they're bald headed with seekers, they'll wear a wig, right, to cover over that so that they blend right in with everybody else. So I saw this guy was a devotee. So when he saw me, he went through this whole dramatic thing like what are you doing here? And so when he did that, I did the same thing. Well, did you know him? No. 
He just said, what are you doing? He said, here? what are you doing here? And I said, what are you doing here? Like that, because I knew who he was, right? Uh-huh. And so then he came over to me. He opened up his book bag, and he had this book. I remember this book, because this is one of the main books I had to study when I was up at Syracuse. was all I had. It was the sixth canto, first, sixth canto, the first set. Of the sixth canto so the first about the life of Ajamil. Okay, so and, and they and they had gotten this fresh off the press, right? Oh. So they were Radadamadar. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They were one of the first traveling Sankatan parties that Prabhupada put out okay. there. And they had the Radadamadar deities on the bus. You know, I want to give the listeners a little context okay. that so you you were presented with a Srimad Bhagavatam Basically, as it was being written, because or, or translated, because Prabhupada was very. As um, soon as he transcribed them, they printed them. Yeah, and he was working very hard to translate as much as possible while he could, and so, so much so that people said great Vedic scholars said that it would not have been possible for a normal for him to have written that many books, and they attribute his books to ghost writers. That's just well, how much. I mean, I think we that's can, just how much of an accomplishment that yeah, he yes. achieved. That it was unbelievable to the Vedic scholars. They said there's no way possible that one person could have done that. Yeah. But he dedicatedly would get up like one, two in the morning, chant his round, start dictating. Yeah. And I mean, he did that for years when he was over here with the books mm -hmm. to get us our books. Because he really and felt that that was the most important thing. Why did he do that? So that someone like you would be walking down the street and be presented with the book. I mean, this was his, his, his mission. An example of its success was you. Because you were totally into the Bhagavad Gita as it is. And then you were presented with the story of Ajamil uh, on the street. But and, let me tell you the rest of it. So, okay, so yeah, the yeah. guy opened up the book bag and showed me the book. I grabbed it. <laughs> this is the shameful part. Yeah. I grabbed it because I wanted to take away all the, the you know, the sales. You know how when you're selling things, how there's a dynamic that goes on of exchange. I wanted to take away the whole dynamic of the sales team, right? And just take the book. I've got the book. I want the book. You know what I mean? Just to let him know. I've got it and I want it. Mm -hmm. So then... He was saying, can you give a donation? I said, yeah. And I, I think I maybe only gave him, even though I knew that this was not the right amount. Mm. I think I maybe gave him like $6. And I thought that was just terrible. Well, but how much it, should you have given him? Uh, well, a I mean, you know, I knew what the book was worth. It was worth more than $6. And it was almost like I was trying to cheat him. Mm -hmm. You know, and so then after he got the money... And he invited me to come out to see the deities that they were staying at this um, fairground in, in their vans. Come out for Mangalarti. So I was a little scared okay. of that, right? Because yeah. I didn't know him. Yeah, meet me at my van. Right. At the you know what I'm saying? You know what <laughs> and I'm he was never heard from again. You know what I'm saying? So part <laughs> of me was like a little hesitant. And I told him I didn't know if I could do that. So then he reached down in his bag and he brought out this big round plastic ball that had 
popcorn in it that had been cooked in ghee and spices. Okay. Like pop, the, uh, big ball of popcorn. Okay. And gave that to me. He said, here, man. He said, this is prashadam from Mongol Artik. You know, and he, I didn't even know what that was at well, that point. Well, and Mongol RT is what? what, what? Like the 5 a.m. early morning service that everybody... Greeting of the deities. Yeah, the going, to, okay. going to wake up. We're waking up. We're starting out for the day. That's the early morning rush. Yeah. And so he gave that no, to No, wait, me. wait. So you're standing with a book in one hand and a ball of popcorn in the other. Yeah, he gave right. that to me. So then I ate some of the popcorn... And don't you know, I immediately had to go to the bathroom. Hmm. I mean, I had to rush over to this pizza parlor. So it was like immediate purification <laughs> took place, right? And I think that's why he gave it to me, you know, because he knew that I maybe wasn't going to come out there and he wanted to make sure I got the book. So that's, I think that is definitely Prabhupada's victory in the world. Mm. Well, sure. When well, people get the book. You're still here. Yes. You know? When people get the books and when they get the prashad, and we've been trying to do that here in D.C. and a lot of my God brothers in Dallas and in um, San Antonio, they work hard. They pay all the bills and everything else they have left, they put it into San Catan, to going out, distributing books, giving prashad to people, trying to keep it going. And a lot of people feel like that's our way of showing Prabhupada, you know, trying to in some way do a pay him back oh. for what he gave us even though it would almost be like impossible because for us to get access to Radha and Krishna in Raja then that's another really important part too that I want to say for years I was always saying Sarvadharma Parigyagya that verse about just surrender to me, banning all varieties of religion. Okay. You know, do not fear. Uh-huh. I was saying that for years, but you know what I was missing? I was missing Sharanam Vraja. What does that mean? Krishna is actually asking us to surrender to him in Vrindavan. That's a big difference oh. from... Where is this verse? Um, that's in the very last chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Okay. Um, I think that might be like 1655, but I just wanted to say that um, that's different from Narayana in the spiritual sky. You know, you're getting to these higher, highest, highest of all, topmost. And then higher domain. than that, and then higher than that. And, and, and getting know. into, like, where Krishna has his Madhurya sweet pastimes. And Krishna says that, you know, there's thousands among men that are trying to get that understanding, and very few of them actually get it. And then of those very few that do get the understanding of me, very few of them know me in truth. And that truth that he's talking about is his Madhurya sweet pastimes. It's Krishna has actually said that if you don't know that about him, if you don't know about like how he's living in Vrindavan, you hardly know him at all. And that 
form of Krishna is the original form that everything else comes from. All the other incarnations come from. And there's certain qualities that he has that no other incarnation has. Like one of them is he has this ability to blow his flute and attract all living entities wherever they are. And he has these pastimes with his devotees that just have the purest love. Like their love is so pure, they have no selfish motivation, you know. Mm. And then the form that he has is the original form that everything else came from. This form, if we, my friends, they always say, I'm going to the temple to see the deity. They say, you're not going to the temple to see the deities. You're going to the temple so the deities can see you. Mm. You're not really seeing Krishna. So I was like, I'm not? What do you mean by that? And part of it is that if we were to actually see that original form of Krishna that's in the spiritual world, that's in Radha, we would immediately want to serve and love and be devoted to him. Well, then what's the holdup? Like, you know, we have, um, this is you know, this part right here. This is kind of my spin. Okay. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to say that anybody else said this right, but um, we've chosen to have this separate experience as an individual here in this world away from Krishna, and to try to have our own separate enjoyment. I don't know if you've ever experience that if you're married or if you have children or family that after everything is said and done you want to go off in your corner and eat your ice cream by yourself right or or the things that we do you know maybe you're not like that but some people i know oh no i'm i'm um yeah i need my personal space exactly you know so we've chosen that and we've chosen to have this separate experience through the mind and the body well, which is a very limited experience you know, I, if, if that's a choice I made I certainly don't remember making it right what I remember is finding myself in a body right and sort of not sure what was going on and slowly sort of uh, understanding my situation and how to in my own way cope survive but i don't remember choosing to come here right and be who you know be this body right so how do you know it was my choice well you know some of it that i am kind of basing on the scriptures um they they say in uh, jiva dharma that's one really important book and um also, uh, I'm trying to think of some other parts too. Yeah, it's in the Shema Bhavatam too. The whole process of us being marginal, like we're right on the edge. Mm. You know, like one spiritual side, and material. Right, we're right in that marginal level. And then because we turn our face from God, you know, we then take birth in this material world because this is something that we were putting our attention on. This one Swami was saying A, B, C, D. A is attention. B is birth. C is the choices that you make. And D is death. So you have all these choices that we make between birth and death. 
but it all is coming from that attention that we first had, mm. like where we focus our attention. And that is the energy of the consciousness of the soul, like attention, consciousness. That's like the energy of our soul. So we put our consciousness into matter. And one of the things that Prabhupada said, that it's like the simple turnaround. He said, all material nature is activities without Krishna consciousness. So we're here in the material world, we're having these activities, we're not conscious of God, that's what makes it material. As soon as you would take like some of the same activities that you've been doing before and add God consciousness to it, you know, and what would that God consciousness be? Doing things in a way that's pleasing to God or that's in line with the divine order of where everything is moving toward, you know, like not working against God's plan, but working right in alignment with it. That that's what would change these material activities into spiritual activity. Like even now, you, I got one group of friends totally against everything, technical, digital, whatever. And then I got another group of friends. They are trying to use these platforms. That's why I came up here with right, you. Right. Because you, to me, represent the positive side of technology. And the reason why I think Krishna has even allowed it to develop to the point that it has now is so that it could be even more easily spread around the mm -hmm. planet through the use of technology. And that's when the technology starts to be spiritual. And I think right. that it has a different effect on you when you're using it that way. When people are using it in a demoralizing and a degrading way, I think that it has a totally uh, different destabilizing and fragmentalizing mm. effect. And we've seen them now try to like break it all down and say, oh yeah, because of these platforms that we're talking about that people are really getting through to folks with consciousness now, that they're saying, now we're going to start to do this whole thing about um, fake news. Yeah. Where we're going to give you a fake news filter where if you put something out there, somebody could just press a button and say they think yeah, this but, is fake news. But let's see, what this is, is uh, this is an organization saying, we're going to tell you what's true and what's not. And it's like, you don't want... You don't want an organization, you don't want a bureaucracy telling you what you can believe and what you can't believe. So I think this whole fake news thing is uh, dangerous. And, and if you, I know you probably don't watch a lot of TV, but if you watch Homeland, the last couple of Homeland ones before the end of the season, they were showing how they have like a building like the size of a huge Microsoft building. And it's just full of people that are, like say you work there and they pay you $300 a day and you got a thousand names under you. Yeah. And you can use these thousand names of people, they call them sock puppets, yeah. to put different information in at these sites oh, to try to shape yeah, yeah, the yeah, politic yeah. Yeah. Okay. and the dialogue of people. <laughs> so with them having something like that, for lack of a yes. better word, to, to, to so, propaganda. Now that's the two. Now, but see what we're 
we're we're pitting two bureaucracies against each other. Two so right. so one is the people who are like let's get let's shape what people are hearing and thinking. But then you've got another group of people saying let's tell people what is true and what's not. Neither of those are good. Right. You know, it's just like right. there's no there's no good guy really in that picture to me. Right. You know, and it leaves you where you were in the beginning, which is you really have to determine for yourself what's what's to be believed and what's not. And, and so, and so you for know? me, I think that like somebody could tap into you, and you could keep a continuous stream of information that's broadening their horizons, or they could scare you off mm. by making you think, you know, that you're going to be scrutinized, or you're going to somehow or another be controlled and um what's the word i want to use it means um censored yeah censor yeah, what yeah, you yeah, could yeah, say yeah, through yeah. pressuring you you know so it's like it's good and it's bad i think that we need a certain amount of restraint because we would just probably really go wild if we could just say or do anything but we pretty much can uh-huh. You really can. Now, of course, uh-huh. you have to worry about the repercussions of what other people are going to think. Uh-huh. But I think legally, you can pretty much say whatever you want. Well, I just meant that um, at one point, if you would go back and listen to yourself later, yeah. you would say, oh, that was unnecessary. That didn't need oh. to be said. Yeah. Yeah. And it, what I mean by that also, too, when I say you got to watch the line. You want to stay away from what they call Prajalpa. Prajalpa? Yeah, yeah. You know, the six Goswamis, they left a lot of things for us to help us improve our devotional service for Krishna. And one of the main things is for us to control our senses. That's probably like the biggest problem for a yogi or a devotee is to learn how to control his senses. And, and that's what Prajalpa means? Prajalpa means um, when you're talking in a way your speech is actually disempowering you Mm. with everything you're saying you're actually drawing more of the illusion towards you like they use the analogy of the frog croaking that's the prajapa attracting the serpent Ah, that's going to attack but in this case what the serpent represents is your senses you know that if you are unregulated in your speech that you won't be able to control what you say or what you think and you definitely won't be able to control your senses you know sense control Uh I understand as important yeah but I also you know I would say I came from a fairly strict and religious family. Right. And I would say, um, you know, self-control can be taken too far. Yes. Because what it can become is is um, sort of clamping down on expressions of joy, clamping down on, um, you know, closeness and friendliness, and instead being more... Um, Rigid. Cold. Okay. You know what I, I know mean? What you're about. So it's not a it's not a cure-all. Like, to... My impression is controlling your senses is good, but you can go overboard with that too. 
you brought me right to the point. I've been working on a book, and one of the subjects of the book is the hardening of the chit. Hmm. Like our consciousness is, they use that word chit. And when I say hardening, I mean, I'm just going to give you a gross example. If every morning you got up and you took a cold shower, mm -hmm. eventually when you got in the shower, you wouldn't even be able to feel it. Okay. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. and that's an example of kind of like you hardened your chit. Okay. So now it doesn't even really feel like a cold shower to you, you know? And the same thing with a lot of people performing too many severe austerities, like you have referred to about mm -hmm. self control can go overboard. You know that you've gone overboard when you harden your chit to the point that you're not feeling those finer feelings that yes. you should have as a devotee. Yes. You're not feeling that love and that expression that's not able to come through. Any strategy, it seems to me, any strategy that gets you to that point of experiencing the finer feelings, any strategy that gets you there is a good strategy. See, now you're, now you're kind of making me kind of veer off into, uh, I had to mention these books. Um, okay. There's one book called uh, Lord Shiva, The Erotic Ascetic. Okay. That's a very important book because most people would contradict those two things. How can asceticism be erotic? erotic. Right. You know, and talks about his play of consciousness and the things that he experienced. And then there's another one. Um, Shiva, Dion, Shiva and Dionysus. Okay. Those two books. Oh, and the Ten Mahavadayas. Those are like the feminine aspects of God. Like, in other words, in rock radical monism, God is one, but that one God manifests as male and female. And so the ten Mahavidyas, they represent not only when we say Mahavidya, we're talking about wisdom, knowledge, that you have like great, great thought, great thinking, but it also manifests as deities, like uh, incarnations, personalities that are expressions of these wisdoms, these vidyas, this knowledge. So, uh, it was Shiva and Dionysus. Oh, and then the other book I want to mention too, The Triadic Heart of Lord Shiva. Now, why did I mention these books? These are very rare books that kind of go into a lot of stuff that they don't talk about in the general literature, like uh, to shape that whole conversation about erotic asceticism and the spiritual development that takes place in one's heart through romantic love, mm -hmm. you know, and consorting, mm -hmm. you know, when someone has a consort and try to get into that mystery of the alchemy that takes place. And a lot of what's taking place is destruction of the ego in those relationships. When you see what Lord Shiva goes through with his wife, wives and the same thing with Dionysus and um, 
Dionysus. I don't know if you ever came across that. Oh, sure. That figure, yeah, that figure. Uh, you know, I guess the main point that I'm hitting on now, hmm. this is making me reach back even further, start off Unitarian Universalist, right? Well, now, wait, Unitarian Universalist? Yeah, that's how I started out. Now, oh. my, my parents, they were Baptists. Okay. But then my father, because he was, I guess you would call him progressive, he wanted me to be in a church, you know, where you had everybody there, you know, white, black, conservative, liberal. The church that I went to, All Souls, they had a lot of Congress people in their church. Okay. So he was trying to put me somewhere where I was going to be around a mix. And the thing about that school, don't you know, before we were 12, we had gone to every major mosque, synagogue, really? temple, and they never taught us that our way was better. They never taught us, well, those people are this, and you're a Unitarian. They never mm -hmm. taught us that. They taught us that they were all true, that there was truth that you could get from them, and then you needed to really like investigate it. So what am I really talking about? I'm talking about comparative study of religion. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the reason why I kind of held the whole path of Krishna consciousness over the other schools that I studied. Well, because, in the, because in studying all of those schools, it seemed like this was the most comprehensive. Now, one thing that did come out recently in my research, and that was that all the paths are fragmented. So even the ones that say we have the largest, most voluminous and complete, even those, if I was going to be honest and not um, biased, I would have to say even those particular paths are fragmented. Are you saying there's no non-fragmented paths available to choose from? I think, yeah, I think that just about everything has, of the major religions mm -hmm. and philosophies, it has all become fragmented. And so, what do you do? What do you do is take from that wisdom story in ancient Egypt with Osiris, where they cut him up, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> into all these pieces, and his wife had to go back and find all the pieces mm -hmm. and put them together. Now, she's representing the devotion that we have to have well, and friends to put and all family. of those things together. I mean, all the people who help put you back together, right? Like, she would represent not just a person, but she would represent probably everybody who helped to recompose, you know, a, a legitimate I never person. thought about that way. You're probably right. Everybody is included. Yeah. But, but everyone, yeah, you have to go. who helps. But what I was going to say is you have to go and study other traditions to find the missing pieces in the mm -hmm. one that you already have. Well, are all the, can you find all the missing pieces? Like, there, uh, there'll be in other traditions. You there'll have a big jigsaw pieces. puzzle, and, 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 but there may be pieces that just aren't there. Well, I think you're going to find them in other traditions, and that's the part where um, I think it's so important to comparatively study. And a perfect example I'll give you about not being closed-minded is I was telling some of the Christian friends of mine when I go to Sunday Adventist Church, I was saying, you know, that story of Job is in other tradition, but maybe the difference was instead of it being a man, it was a woman. So then they started saying to me, well, then that's not the same story. 
And and I was like saying, wow, it did like, you know, you'll see in one story, it may be a fish that gathered up some sperm that was in the water and took it somewhere. Or then in another wisdom story from another tradition, it may be a little bird. But the same principle is there. And then like say, okay, in the Bible, Jonah and the whale. Yeah. You know. A lot of those stories, if you really put them together, are in other traditions. Well, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I understand, but what I, uh, I sort of despair okay. of ever pulling together enough pieces to make a complete picture. Right. So I don't feel like I can, I don't feel like I can go to all the religions and come up with enough material to complete a picture. Like, I feel like there's just right. missing pieces. Right. That no religion particularly is going to give me or, or give me insight into. And okay. for that, either I have to be like, well, I just am not capable or maybe meant to understand these things or maybe it'll just take more time. Uh, you know, and it can become it can lead to despair. We're like, you know, this just isn't working. I'm not a saint. I'm not on a path. I'm not on the path to the spiritual world. Um, I'm not succeeding. And, and, but you have for one reason or another, just to keep trying. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Yes. And then the verse that comes to my mind, we always talk about this all the time is Christmas says, because I was talking to one of my friends about moving. He was saying, wow, you're going to have to like start all over again with a lot of things that you were doing that you got comfortable with. And for a little second there, I was agreeing with him. But then I realized, I said, no, it's that verse that Krishna said, there's no loss or diminution on this path. Right. And a little bit of progress can save you from the worst kinds of fear. So... It's like we look at it that way because we might have been doing like a business transaction. You know, where we're like, what's the result? What's the total? What's the debt? You know, we, we're looking at it that way, right? But then, like, one of my uh, God sisters, she used to always say, you know, Bhakti, you always want the optimal healing effect. Mm. But sometimes we're just planting seeds. Mm. And I couldn't get into that because to me, I was like, no, nah, I don't want to just plant a seed. I want to grow a big plant. I want to get fruit from it. I want to feed people with it. I want to just stop there. But she would say, yeah, you're always looking for the whole, complete, perfected outcome when you got to realize that sometimes we could just be planting seeds with people. And I've had a lot of my God brothers tell me about experiences they had where they worked with somebody over a period of time and they were transformed. And you had to have that big picture perspective to go maybe like eight years with somebody and you're talking to them for that long before they, you know, finally change. Okay, so we left you. Um, you had received a book and a ball of popcorn. Right. You had a little bit of popcorn. You had to go to the bathroom. Right. You felt like th there was something very cleansing. Purification took place right but away. a lot more happened. We didn't even get to the point where y you were living on the temple grounds in the 1970s. Right, right. Yeah, so after I finished Syracuse, 
and I came down, like everybody that was around me, my martial arts teacher and two other devotees, we all came and joined the temple. You know, that was our whole, okay, we're coming to Washington, we're just going to move to the temple. And the people here, they were like, great, we got four more devotees, uh -huh. you know. And we were very enthusiastic about everything. And you, you know? lived on the grounds. Yeah. And you did like, you woke up early every morning. See, that's the thing that I wish I could really talk to people about what it's like to have like the full program. Because even now, I know it's going to sound like I'm being critical. Even now in the temples, I don't think that people follow like the full program, you know, and it may be because they got to go to work or sure. they have like other responsibilities that make it difficult. But it's like getting up and going to all those programs that Prabhupada set up for us. Like we called it the Krishna conscious sandwich. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, when I stayed at other temples like Dallas with Sasharut Maharaj, we had classes in the morning, Shamaabhavatam class. But then in the evening, you know, the brahmacharis would have, like, Nectar of Devotion, Chaitanya Charitamrita, and then, after we got through, you know, going and sitting with the guru and discussing uh, those books, you know, it's kind of like getting us ready to go to sleep. Yeah. We would go back to wherever we stayed in our rooms, and we would read more before we went to wow. bed. So, so what happened with me that kind of set me aside from the other people in the temple was when everybody else went to sleep, I went to the library and I just started pouring You through. love to read, don't you? Well, you know what it was? It's, I knew that that tradition of wisdom was available to me there, you know, the books. Yeah. And that I might not get that opportunity again. So let me take advantage <clears throat> at least get an overview. Yeah. At least see what's there, right, and get absorbed. So I would be in the library, and the pre the president of Dallas Temple, my duty, his office, like say this is the library, his office is over there. By me being in the library, the light was going under the door, right? Okay. So he complained to the guru. He said, this guy, he's up all out. He's not following the side. So it was funny because when I sat down with uh, Sasha Raj to talk to him about the whole thing, he said, what are you reading, right? So I told him, I said, I'm reading Chaitanya Charity. He said, oh, he said, that's very advanced, right? So he encouraged me. But then he said, but you know, not following the sadhana. You sort know. of the, um, just the schedule. Yeah, yeah, being synchronized, like yeah, us yeah, harmonizing yeah. with each other. We got a cycle that we're all working sure. through this day, right? He said, that's not advanced. And he didn't say anymore. He didn't say, stop. Uh -huh. You know, he didn't say, you can't do that anymore. He just laid it out for me like that. And I was like, okay, I understand what you're saying. But yeah, because I had taken that time to read those books, when I was in New York Temple, I was around the San Catan devotees there that were more advanced. They allowed me to be in their association and take classes with them because they would have their own little classes before they went out on Sankatan. And all, the same thing at night, all Sankatan devotees would kind of like huddle up with each other to keep that enthusiasm because they had a little bit more enthusiasm than the temple devotees. Yeah. 
because you got to go out like we talked about. You got to go out and see these people every day. Look, yeah. and you can imagine how sometimes those people can really give you the blues, right? Oh, yeah. So you got to be not only enthusiastic and self-motivated, but you got to have like some people around you that'll pull you out of it. You know, if you're it's getting almost, discouraged. I mean, I, you know, a lot of military analogies come to mind there of like, you know, you're in enemy territory and you're trying to survive with with a few other people. And so you come together and you you become a, like a military unit. Another good story you just brought up. Like I was down in the temple and we used to have a phone in the Prashada room. Somebody had called from Florida. It was a famous musician that didn't want to give their name. And they were saying they were getting ready to commit suicide. So Gary Rod started to talk to him. And he started to tell him what he should do. And he said, man, you should go to the nearest temple and be around the nearest devotees that you can and take prasad. And he started telling them, he said, that's how we inoculate ourselves from the influence of Maya. So this association is allowing us to be protected from things and the reason why that really affected me is because I didn't identify out and say, oh, I'm not trying to commit suicide. I don't have anything to do with me. I realized the message that Krishna was giving me. That we're all down here subtly or more grossly involved in different forms of suicidal behavior, mm -hmm. of throwing our lives away and stuff, you know. And that the instructions that Gary Raj, I didn't mean to pound the tape, the instructions that Gary Raj gave were like pretty like basic, you know, to just be around devotees, visit the temple, see the deity, take a shot of, you know, in that association you'll feel better and you'll be able to turn around this onslaught of Maya or illusion that's overwhelming you now to the extent where you think you should destroy yourself. And when I was listening to one lecture by Prabhupada, he was talking about how now that you have this material body, you should save your soul. And then he compared that to the teaching of Lord Jesus Christ. He said, wasn't Jesus Christ teaching that? And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's a more simplified form of exactly what he was doing, almost like from a yogic perspective, you know. Mm -hmm. Now that you've come to this human form of life, the first thing you should do, like people have all these other things that they work on, like taking care of their body, taking care of their family, trying to become famous or successful, but saving their soul is not a priority. And that should actually be the first priority. And then it would give meaning to all those other things you were going to do, you know. And, uh, you know, that's when we think of words like logos and how they were talking about that Christ consciousness or uh, Christ himself was the logos that this is what's going to give meaning to your life is Krishna. And, uh, and have you found that to be the case? You know, now I uh, wish that I wasn't wasting any of my time 
uh-huh. and then I was completely absorbed just 24 hours a day because that's what Prabhupada has actually left us. He's left us away. Now, and could you clarify that a little bit when you say you would like to be absorbed 24 hours a day? Yeah, absorbed like in other in, words, in, in, in other words, he's actually left us enough spiritual activity, literature, uh, books, association for us to be engaged actively in service to Krishna 24 hours a day, you know, and so then people say, well, what about when you're asleep, right? Well, you know, why are you sleeping? Like some people are sleeping just because they like to sleep. But, but, but you, you sort of uh, implied that this was something you would like. Yes. But that's not the case. It's not so the what, case, right? So what keeps right. you from from being 24 hours engaged? You know, this is so important what you bring up. They talk about these stumbling blocks in devotional service. Yeah. Like, um, there's a book. It's called Kadambini. Uh, try to remember the first first part of the name of the book. But they talk about some of the obstacles or notches on the spiritual path and um, they'll say uh, Laba, wealth, puja, worship, pratista, facility. So like you have this creeper or this plant that's growing up that's a devotional plant of love and bhakti for Krishna's going back to the spiritual world. But then you have these three other vines that I just mentioned, the wealth, the worship, worship and the, and the pratis of the facility. If, if you stop focusing on the bhakti or the devotion, uh-huh. then those three things can start to choke you off. Where well, how you'll, does facility choke you off? I'll give you a good oh, example worship. where a person, and we see this all the time, the person is doing good, man. They're a cult of personality. They have people wanting to follow them, people want to give their life. Then they stop focusing their energies on the mission. Yeah. And start to put more focus into maintaining the facilities. You know, uh, like they use... But so they, is, is this what you did? Uh, I think that I didn't get a chance to get the facility. So I didn't get a chance to do that yet. But it may happen to me like that. That I get to the point where I have so much facility, now I got to take my attention away yeah. from the devotional well, activities well, you're, themselves. I mean, you're telling me about sort of the, um, you know, the, if you read, the, you know, you'll find that these are the three obstacles to 24-hour engagement. Right. But I want to know what your personal... I like, haven't gotten like the where, facility where, where yet. Where are you at? Where are you at? I haven't gotten the facility yet. I haven't gotten... <laughs> The worship, I haven't gotten the wealth. So I haven't had those three problems. Those yet. obstacles. Yeah, right, yeah well, right, I haven't right. had that problem but either. They, but, but they <laughs> help a lot and they come automatically. Like yeah. you will see automatically wealth will come out of nowhere if you have bhakti. And you'll see automatically people will want to worship you 
without you even asking them to do this, right? But that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Like that can... It's no problem if you stay focused on the bhakti. It's okay. no problem. And, and you see the people that are gracious like that. Yeah. That they know that it's not about them. They're not self-possessed. They're not caught up with their ego getting fed. Yeah. You know, and if you say that you want to do something for them, they're already thinking about how they can get you to do something for Krishna. You know, they're right. always right. dovetailing right. those desires Mm -hmm. for profit, adoration, and distinction. Sometimes they break it down like that. But the distinction is still coming back to Pratista. And, and I said, what's that? What's Pratista? facility. And I, and I said that facility is one thing that I've always wanted, but it probably could be like the worst thing that I would ever get because mm -hmm. it takes your attention away yeah. for what you really want to do. But having it is good. You know, like this to me is Pratista. The recorder. No, uh, your platform. The podcast? Yeah. Yeah, your platform. Okay, okay. okay. That's, that's Pratista. You know, that's facility. Their ways now. I was listening to a lecture by this one guy from New York called Blue Pill. And he was talking about how I thought he was going to be so critical of a lot of the black platforms that were out there because they have so many different weird philosophical ranges some of the stuff is true some of the stuff is weird some of the stuff is fabricated i thought he was going to be critical especially of this one platform called the breakfast club and the breakfast club is just totally focused around hip-hop music and hip-hop culture uh -huh. and it's probably one of the most popular of all the platforms out there because of that reason and they had gotten such alternative news and information out there. They had actually blown past the regular media of NBC, mm -hmm. ABC, mm -hmm. CBS, and Fox. More people were actually going to those platforms. And then, like, another example i give you is, like, say somebody like you with your podcast. You can easily get 5,000, 8,000 people. That's an easy thing that happens I'm, all I'm the time. I'm working on it. Easily, it always <laughs> happens. Easily, it'll happen. Like you get that many people, and so they have a lot of groups now of people that want to get their information out. Like, say you want to get your information out, I want to get my information out, right? And we now have a group of people that are taking that information. They're exchanging with us. They're learning with us and stuff like that. So we get a chance to do what we wanted to do and stuff. And this is actually blowing past the other media to the point where those people that are listening to what you're saying, listen to what I'm saying, they're not going there for their news anymore because they're not really being fed by those and they realize that and that's why they're having to like catch up now and you'll see them say things like I saw a thing on Fox News the other day that was just as crazy as you can imagine where they were going through this whole revelation of all of the black people that were the founding fathers of America for real. Hmm. And everything that had been hidden, and they were even asking the question really sheepishly, why wouldn't they let us know about this, right? You know, like that. And I was saying, wow. And all these people have gotten fired from Fox News, and now all of a sudden they're coming forward with all this information that you've never heard of before. They were talking about this one Admiral Amistad 
they said the strategy that he gave the North allowed them to defeat the Confederate, you know, Navy, their, mm -hmm. their little, you know, yeah, their yeah. ships when they came to attack. Because they were coming to attack the North, attack the cities. And he gave them this strategy he, that they were actually saying that he could have single-handedly been given responsibility for winning the war just in what he did, that one person. And they were showing all these myriad of people and saying, why didn't they tell us this? Why are they been hiding this information? And I was like saying, wow. It's almost like they got to do something now to bring people's attention back to those mainstream you right. know, uh, outlets. Right. But I think what you're doing is very progressive because people that really want to culture something specific, they can go to a specific platform and get that food well, without being like lied to or propagandized yeah. by these but, other... You know, there's another thing is that uh, people may see Hare Krishnas in the street, but they may not understand that there's a culture from which that has come, that it's, um, I, you know, I think there are success stories in book distribution, Harinam, but we don't hear about the stories about, you know, the, the average person sees Hari Krishnas on the street and is like, that's just crazy. And that's all they think. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? So they don't understand that behind the Hare Krishna and, and their behavior that, you know, by standard, uh, any standard measurement is pretty wacky. To, but to understand who they are, where they're coming from, the books that sort of back up what they're doing, that there's, there's a lot going on behind just the, um, the street meeting on the street. You know, and, and part of the reason for this podcast is, is to talk to people who come to this temple, uh, the one in Potomac, Maryland, and just say, you know, who are you? Why, what, what are you doing here? Because I also want to get a little bit away, and actually you're, you're very good at, at this, is understanding the party line, understanding the orthodox method, but also being a person. And right. so that it's not like, you know, I, I attempt to conform myself to these rules and regulations as much as possible, but I'm not always successful. So it's, um, there's sort of, a, there's people behind this, you know what I mean? And it, not just, it's not just crazy people. There, there's really something going on that's worth checking out. And you're really hitting, you're really hitting on one of the principles that um, Prabhupada expressed was utility is the principle. Mm. So you're basically saying to me that, yeah, after I get through hearing all those rules and regulations and the party line, what is it that I can really practically apply in my life that will help me, you yeah. know, or be helpful to anyone else yeah, that I and come in I'm, I'm not really ready to shave my head. And, exactly. and put on, um, you know, put clay on my forehead and, and... It's so funny you would say that because when I went out on Hari Nam two weeks ago with Lakshmi Vaughn, Lakshmi Vaughn wanted me to put on T-Lock, so I told him, I said, no, I'm not going to do that unless I had the rest of the clothes on. Mm -hmm. And I told him the reason for me personally is because... You know, they use this word 
bastardized culture or I've heard people talk about how they'll see someone with a formal tux, right? Yeah. But then the handkerchief and the tie might be kinty cloth. Uh-huh. So they'll say that really one thing is kind of like taking away from the other, right? You yeah, know? it's almost a so, juxtaposition. Yeah, and also too, you're kind of like, uh, I guess you say mainstreaming and somewhat marginalizing the meaning of it. And so then Lakshmi would say, oh, Prabhupada said, regardless of how you dress, you know, even if you have a business suit or he said the T lock, he said, that's our symbol. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. So I was like, I know what you mean, but I've been in situations I never will forget when we went down to the monument and we were chanting around the monument and um came out there with harmonium, spread the rug out, we're passing out literature. This is before they had put all of that covering up and redid the monument. Uh-huh, yeah. And uh, it was so funny. The only person that all of the visitors came up to was me. Uh, <laughs> they came up to me and they were like, hey, man, what is this all about, right? right. And so finally the devotees just gave me all the literature and everything and they said and, and, you pass it out right and they were all and you think it's because you didn't have the outfit I, I, I fit I fit with them yeah I blended yeah. with them and they didn't yeah. see a I mean, difference I, I suppose I should throw in the footnote I, I'm in no way opposed to people wearing uh, it's called T-lock it's the clay lines on the forehead uh, or the you know the whole get up uh, you know nothing wrong with that um, I, I just I don't feel the urge yeah, you know, it's 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 a um, it's an experience. It's an experience. Like um, it's almost like the best way I could describe it is you probably are not as inclined to like the priesthood. Yeah, you know how people are trying to be priests. They're trying to be uh, on the altar. They're trying to serve the deity. They're trying to do a lot of pukka, first class ceremonies for the Lord. So then they go through the whole process. It's a tradition and it has spiritual meaning to it. And a lot of that people don't understand. Like they'll be practicing for years before they really fully understand, you know, what it means and stuff. And so for the people that really have gone deeper into what is the meaning behind those symbols and why do they do it, um, it has, I think, an even more profound effect. But I think the children that come up, influenced by that, it's almost like it's very subtly a part of them in a way that, um, you know, we try to function more from our intellect and they're functioning more spontaneously, Mm -hmm. more intuitively with Mm -hmm. it, you know, and uh, I guess... We would have to have it made clear to us the impact that those things have on the environment around us. Because I would study with one um, teacher how to do the fire, Agni Hotra. Mm-hmm. And it was a visitor came in from India. And so I knew a little bit about Lord Shiva and 
some of his practices. And one of the things he does is he would put this ash on his body. Mm -hmm. So because it was tied in with the fire, those practices, I asked the guy about it. He said that he would teach me. And he said that I was the only one, any of the people in America that wanted to even know about that. Why did I say that? Because I found out it's a lot of deeper meaning and effect on the environment and your body than what, you know, would be apparent to us. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting a chance to practice things that are even beyond our understanding. And, you know, they say, when you believe in things that you don't understand, you may end up suffering from superstition mm -hmm. in a way. So I know a lot of people are skeptical of becoming involved in superstitious things sure. because it can start to influence you in ways that you don't want to. But mm. Inyat Khan, um, Hazrat Inyat Khan, he uh, wrote a book and he said, superstitions, customs, and belief all of them have truth behind it. So it's like when you go, you dig deeper into the truth behind the T-lock and the ash and the applying of these things on your body along with mantra and you start to find out the deeper effect that it's having on you. Like where if you knew that this was going to actually make you like more detached from thinking that you were your body or if this was going to put more harmony with you, give you more harmony in terms of your soul being in this body, you know, and then the practical aspect of it that Prabhupada was describing about how, you know, you're the judge or you're the policeman, even when you're sitting at home with your kids. They don't know that because they're probably not seeing you with your uniform on. Then when you go to work and you put your uniform on, people respond to that uniform. You're not a different person. You're the same person. What they respond to, respond to the uniform. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it is you're having a uniform and it's different. And <clears throat> you may not want to be different. That's one of the hardest things I think a lot of devotees go through when they start to realize that they are different, that they're being treated different, that they have a lot that people are expecting from them. They can kind of like balk from that because you want to just be like, you want to fit in with everybody else. That's, that's something that's forced on us by material nature that we have to air in the direction of the environment that we're around. Like if you're well, in an environment of people that are of a particular consciousness, you start to take on that consciousness. Yeah. So this is something like the T-lock and the dress where you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't. And then, like I never will forget one of my uh, close advisors was saying to me, she's a, a Christian. She said, you know, sometimes when we're around our family members and other people that we know, our friends, we're not ourselves. Meaning that sometimes we do show out for people so that they will accept us. So that they, 
you know, those are like all integrity issues. Like, uh, how far are you going to go with that? Are you going to even go to the point of lying to them to make them feel good? Just so you can remain in their association and not be ostracized, you know? Or are you going to become diplomatic where you learn how to uh, share your responsibility with them as far as teaching them the truth? but not doing it in a way that's not gracious. Because, you know, uh, that's the real art of personality, to be able to accomplish what you're trying to do with little or no effort just by understanding the nature of people. And uh, it's a wonderful story I want to tell you about. Like this, this one employer had this huge plant. He had these three employees. They weren't the only employees, but they were important ones. And one of the uh, employees, whenever he would see the boss, he would just tell him how wonderful he was. Mm -hmm. Have you heard this story? No. He'd tell him how wonderful he was, and he'd tell him how intelligent he thought he was, and you know how much he appreciated being able to work with him. So just from him saying that, the um, boss increased his salary one hundred dollars. So he went back and he told this other guy of the three guys, these three people that work for the bar. He said, man, he said, I know what you need to do. He said, you need to go over there and tell him what you think of him. He's going to give you some money just for that. I told him what I thought of him and how much I appreciated, And he increased my salary for $100. Mm -hmm. Not just... A week, but for that day. Mm -hmm. So I was starting to tell him that every day. Right. And every day he was giving me money. So that's all you need to do. So the other guy said, he said, nah, he said, I'm not going to do that. He said, each day I'm going in and I'm getting him to like sign checks and sign this different paperwork. And eventually I'm going to get him to sign something that the whole company is going to be my company. And so then they went to the third guy and were telling him, yeah, you should go butter him up, man. You're going to get some money from it. And then he said, nah, he said, I'm not going to do that. And then he said, well, what about taking over the company? You want to work with us? We're going to take over the whole company. He said, nah, I'm not going to do that. He said, um, I'm satisfied with what he's given me. It's enough for me to take care of my family and all my responsibilities. And he's been good to me, and I have faith in him, and I'm just going to stick by him. So the whole time this whole conversation was going on, the boss had left his keys in the office, and he had came back to get his keys, and he heard everything. So he came in the room, and he told the other two guys, he said, go on and do what you were doing, you know, go back to work, whatever it was you were doing. And he told the third guy, he said, you know, I've known about them. I've known about what they've been doing all along. He said, I'm not worried about them. He said, but you I'm concerned about. And he said, why? He said, because of the faith that you have in me. Mm. He said, you have so much faith in me. He said, I'm thinking about turning the whole company over to you to handle all my affairs. So he said, but I'm not qualified. He said, don't worry about it. He said, your faith in me is enough of a qualification. And he said, I'm going to oversee the day-to-day -to, -day to help you anyway. 
So the story was really adjusting how, addressing how the first guy was kind of like the Carmies, the people that are involved in, in karma, uh, fruitive activity, yeah. uh, reaping and sowing. And most karmis, they're ready to do anything to try to get something from God. They are approaching God with the point of view of what can I get from God. Mm -hmm. And then the second guy, he kind of represents like the Mayavites or the personalists. They want to become God. Right. You know, and control everything. And then the third one, he represented a devotee who's just satisfied to do his service. And the thing, the revelation that I got from the whole story was so powerful to me. I realized that because the devotee has so much faith in Krishna, Krishna puts him in charge of all of his affairs. You know, and you look at how wonderful that is, you know, how the gopis, Mother Yasoda, the cowherd boys, all of Krishna's activities, everything he does, they're completely over all of that. And he makes them be over all that because of the faith and the love that they have for him. And so I thought about that. I said, yep, that's a good ideal for us to think of in terms of that verse, Anya Bilasata Sunyam, Karma, Gana, Anavitam, Anukule, the Krishna Shilanam, Bhakti, Uttama, that those activities which are expressly designed to please Krishna that are not covered by uh, Gana in the form of, you know, nervous shesha, Sunyavadi becoming absorbed into the Brahman mm -hmm. and it's not covered by karma where you basically are trying to get some fruit for yourself and enjoy separately from Krishna. You're not trying to experience the love, you know, the union of the whole. You're not connecting with the whole big plane, just thinking separately about myself, right? what I can get for myself. It's not covered by that. All of those activities, that's considered to be pure devotional service. So that's what we're really working toward. And that's what that story kind of represented to me, that the first two people, you know, they're kind of caught up in Gan and karma. And the last person, because he has decided just to do bhakti, just to do devotion. He's been given everything by Krishna. And there's one of the uh, songs that the uh, gopis sing that I just recently learned. They go, you might have heard it before it goes. Govinda Dhammo Dhanamadaveti Govinda Dhammo Dhanamadaveti Govinda Dhammo Dhammadaveti. So it's Govinda, Dhammodar, and Madhava. And the reason they chant that those three names is because they're trying to become more in that energy. Govinda, 
the uh, one who satisfies the senses of the cows and the inhabitants just through blowing his flute. And Damodar, Krishna that can be bound through the love of the devotees. The, uh, the rock Atmika Janas, the, the really, really confidential service of the Lord in the spiritual world. Their love is so intense that they actually control Krishna with their love. And Madhava, Madhava is the one who's completely under the control of Radha. Hmm. So they, they try to absorb themselves in that consciousness to try to become more and more like that every day. And that's, uh, you know, I was telling my friend on way over, I was listening to this Christian minister, and he was saying that God is looking for people who want to completely open their heart to him in communion and don't think that he doesn't know the difference between that and the people that are just maybe like putting the front up. Mm -hmm. And then he said something that I thought was very powerful. He said, and it's time for us to start knowing the difference. I didn't mean to bang on the table. It's time for us to start doing well, well, the difference. But, and where do where do you where do you place yourself in this uh, on the spectrum? You know, like, uh, where, they, where, they, where are you at? Like they say, Kanista, Mudjam, and Udama, or right. What are those? Uh, those are the three levels of devotion. Kanista Adhikari is like the neophyte. Okay. The Mudjam Adhikari. You know, that's the level that the topmost devotees come down to in order to preach. And you have to see people differently. You have to see mm. some people as absorbed in service to Krishna. So not that the topmost devotee, they don't make a distinction. They see everybody as a devotee of Krishna except themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, they see everybody as serving Krishna in some way or another. And that they need to get on the ball, right? But then that level of devotee, the topmost devotee, he comes down to that majum level in order to preach. And the, the characteristics of the majum adhikari level are vacho vegam, manasoda krota vegam. That means controlling the tongue, belly, and genitals, controlling the mind, controlling anger. You have to have control of your senses to be at that majum level to preach, to teach, to make devotees. The other thing, qualification is, they're able to form arguments that are able to defeat the impersonalists. The impersonalists are basically people that says that Krishna doesn't exist, that he's not a person. You know, that, that they limit what the Lord can be and stuff like that. So they're able to form arguments, they're able to present conclusions, conclusive sedanta, you know, where it's not just conjecture, but you can mm -hmm. come to a conclusive understanding about the absolute truth. And then the last part of that is they're realized in their relationship with Krishna. I know I've been in several circles. When I said that, everybody was like, whoa, where did he get that from, right? But no, when I say realize their relationship with Krishna, I mean they know what their role is in the spiritual world. They already know. 
So what is it that you um, sort of incline towards? Obviously, you incline towards reading. But I want to, I want to say this about those, okay. those levels. You talk about finding myself where I am. Yeah. Another more simplified one is they say Kanista just started to chant. Mm-hmm. Mudjum always chanted. Mm-hmm. So then what would you say about that topmost devotee? If, if, if just beginning to chant, always chanting, well, what could that be? Yeah. Do you know? No. That person, when you just see that person, you start chanting. Hmm. So when you ask me where I want to be or where do I see myself, right? I definitely don't feel like I'm a Kanista Adhikari just beginning to chant. I don't. Now, as far as the Majum Adhikari part goes, I haven't gotten to a point where I can control my senses, but I'm working on that. Uh You know, and then as far as that being a person that inspires others to chant, that's something that I aspire to. Uh You know, to be a person that when even my karmi friends or my relatives or, you know, people I work with, when they see me, they say, oh, Hare Krishna Bhakti. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's definitely something to aspire to because that means that you've told them about Krishna and they know about Krishna. And that was one of the instructions that Prabhupada gave us. I had one God brother, Rasikananda, he more perfectly express the following of that instruction by Prabhupada to anybody else I know because everybody that you ever met that knew him, they had a book, they had chanted, they knew who Krishna was. And that's a real, real simple like instruction. Mm-hmm. But it's probably harder to practice, but it's simple, you know, tell everybody you meet. You don't have to do a lot, just tell everybody that you meet. Yeah. You know, which that means that you don't have to go but so far. Just deal with the people that are around you, you know. But then for a lot of us, when we told everybody we met, we might have gotten ostracized. You know, but then you got to get beyond that fear because what's going to happen is you're going to be in a place where you're not going to try to let anybody know who you really are for fear of how they're going to react to you. But then what I always tell all my friends that are like that, I know you can't do that because you're not the type of person that can sit around when everybody's talking the dumb stuff and not say something. Mm-hmm. So because that's how I see you, don't even try it. Just go ahead. Because I had a couple of friends say, oh yeah, I'm going to quit spiritual life and go back to material life. I said, that's not going to work. I, they said, why not? I said, because when you're around all those people trying to fit in with them, first time they say something stupid, you're going to be the one that pops up with the wisdom, mm-hmm. and then that's going to change all the relationships. You know, so you, it's not going to work. You know, you trying to avoid, that's why I was saying, like devotees don't realize it's hard for them to accept sometimes that they're different mm. and that people are going to treat you differently. Yeah. You know, I was out in Southeast at my church and uh, this one lady that I know, I had showed her where there was a food program and she remembered me and she was on crutches 
and she asked me how I was doing. I said, oh, I'm just going through issues of dealing with homelessness and stuff like that. She said, I said, well, you shouldn't have done what you did in the first place. And she started getting on me real hard and saying, you must have messed up. And I was homeless. for I had to be on a list for six years. You, you got to just struggle. You know, she started to talk about how it's going to be a long, hard road, but God would protect me, and then I would get there. Then at one point, she just stopped, and she said, you know, there's something I'm feeling coming from you. You know, and that's what I was saying about how devotees are different. People can tell that you're different. Like some of our practices, we don't realize the aura of divinity and the light that we're traveling with, the people that are around us that are there in the form of sound. You know, these instructions that we're taking, mm -hmm. like Prabhupada is still here in the form of sound. You know, and they say that the sound, the Vani, is even more powerful than the Vapu than any people that were around Vapu. Vapu is your personal association where you're actually there in the room with the person. So anybody that was ever in that experience, they would be, be like, nah, nah, it's nothing more powerful than that. That was it. But then just to know that even more powerful is the Vani, that the Vani can actually bring the Vapu. What do I mean by that? That through that sound vibration, that person can actually be there with you. You know? And the way he's left so many good instructions for us that neutralize the illusion. That's where uh, Sasharu Maharaj, he put out this book called Living with the Scriptures. And he talks about how, like, you have Sastra, the weapon, like Brahmastra, mm -hmm. Sastra. And then you have Shastra, the revealed scriptures. So the revealed scriptures, the Vedic verses that we read, the slokas, the parts in the Bhagavad Gita, Bhavatam, the philosophy, the scriptures, the Shastra, that can be like a weapon. But what it's a weapon against is it's a weapon against Maya and illusion. So you can take a journal, you can take your own little book, write down, you know, the verses that really would always turn it around for you because we had a tendency to be forgetful. Mm. You know, that was one of the things about this age. There was one verse in the Shema Bhavatam where they talked about um, in this iron age of Kali people are, you know, foolish, unwise, unlucky, short duration of life. They just went over all the bad qualities that we had. And uh, above all, lazy, mm -hmm. you know. And, and see, that's the thing in spiritual life that you have to struggle with. You have to really, oh, and then I was listening to one of my goblins was reading the book and he was talking about how you can't just try to merge with, you won't make any progress in devotional service if you just try for mukti, liberation, merging with the Brahman, merging in the light, and you don't do anything that is self-evaluating. 
So I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did you say about that? He said, I didn't say that. He said, I said, you can't just be in a book. I said, you didn't say self-evaluate? He said, no, I didn't say that. So I was like, why I started thinking about that? Because even in the book of Thomas, that was a book that they took out of the Bible. Yeah. They didn't take it out. They didn't put it in. Well, see, go, go. you have to go to Nicene Council mm-hmm. yeah. in 440 where they would decide what they were going to take out. But you could say put in. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to split hairs with you. <laughs> but uh, the book of Thomas in there, he said that getting salvation from Jesus Christ was not enough. You had to have self-realization. Uh-huh. I said, I could see why they would leave that out because that's taking a lot of power away from the church and putting a lot of responsibility on the individual. So I just brought that point out to say that part of this process is you have to, it's not mechanical and robotic, you have to be self-evaluated, which means just like I see in you, you have to be an independently thoughtful devotee where you're thinking for yourself. You're, you're taking in the information that you've been given from association and what you've been able to learn. But you're figuring it out for yourself, too. Trying to. You know, yeah, yeah. And that's very important. You have to be self-evaluating and even thinking, am I doing this service the right way? Am I having, am I developing a service attitude? You know, there are a lot of things that you have to scrutinize and evaluate in yourself in order to make progress. And the verse that comes to mind, Raja Vidya, Raja Guya. Krishna talks about this is the king of education and this is the, the the height of religion, you know. And one of the reasons it's so progressive is because it gives you direct perception of the soul on the path of self-realization. Like you know who you are and where you are on the path. That's the beauty of this. Mm-hmm as opposed to having to go to somebody else. And then actually being able to, this is a very advanced level I'm talking about, actually being able to see what your role is in the spiritual world. Sometimes a spiritual master will tell you, and then you can work on that, work on that conception, chant like that, you know, be engaged like that. Even in the temple services, you know, I see some mothers I, I really feel like I don't have the kind of devotion they have. They'll come in here every day and make garlands for mm-hmm. Krishna. And see, that's probably directly related to some service that they have in the spiritual world. So they, they there's a verse in the Nectar of Devotion in the beginning where it says each, each service has its individually attractive feature, which is like an impetus that pushes the devotee on and at the same time they're getting a pleasure that's coming from, that they're deriving from that service. So Krishna doesn't mind that we experience pleasure in serving him, but we should be thinking about pleasing him first and foremost more than us you know, self-aggrandize. Or, yeah, we may get pleasure out of it, but the important thing isn't our pleasure. It's it's sort of a a byproduct that's not the whole point of the effort. And this, see, you know, even though I had a whole long thing to say about that, you kind of made me make the U-turn 
Tirada is saying about how Krishna recognized she was getting more out of it than he was. Mm -hmm. And that's why he came as Lord Chaitanya. You know, and when you think about how you got to really understand Gora Lila of Lord Chaitanya coming, or it's no possibility of us understanding Krishna Lila. That's heavy to me. You know, and I think probably that's why I was intuitively so drawn and absorbed into reading the Chaitanya Charitra mm -hmm. Rita because it's almost like Lord Chaitanya is our saving grace. Yeah. You know, he's the one, like I had mentioned to you before, when Christmas says, as they surrender to me, I reward them accordingly. Our surrender does not qualify for that verse. That Christian, not the surrender that he's talking about in that verse, right? So how do we meet the standard? How do we come up to the benchmark of what's being presented for us? That Lord Chaitanya. Lord Chaitanya is subsidized. I don't know if you were in school and used to get milk in school. Yeah. But... <coughs> when you were coming up in yeah, elementary it? school, they sure. give you milk to drink. Sure. Did you have to pay for it? No, I don't remember. Like, say for example, if that little thing of milk was 50 cent, because we had been subsidized, we got it for free or we only had to pay 50 cent. Okay. That's what Lord Chaitanya has done. Through him adding the prey that he has. You said praying? Praying, yes. Pure love of God. The, um, the ultimate, like, distillation of that love where there's no separate motivation, there's no business transaction, where the person is just loving God, not looking for anything in return, right? By him adding his praying to what we're doing, that's actually subsidizing our, as they surrender unto me, I reward them accordingly, to make it mm. be the standard that Krishna was addressing in that verse. That's what you're saying. Yeah. So, and then we do that through the spiritual master. You know, the spiritual master has already got that love, has already got that devotion, and we're offering it to Krishna through the whole line. So it's not just us. You know, like we normally think, okay, well, I want a direct relationship with God. I want to include anybody else. But it's almost like, we don't love Krishna to the extent that we could be that possessive. You know, you need a lot more of a stronger relationship, which we are developing, to get to that momity, to that possessiveness, where Radha says, you are mine. Krishna says, I am yours. Mm. But Radha says, you are mine. And she has that momity, that possessiveness because of the relationship. And that's the whole thing. I'm just now really starting. Two things I've been grinding on so hard in my book that I'm working on is that everything comes back to your relationship and that we're trying to develop a higher taste. Those things are going to keep on coming up over and over and over again in the literature and in your life. So much so. And an example that I give is, you know, sometimes we hear about some horrendous crime that took place 
Somebody you, you, got you hear that all the time. Yeah, somebody got shot, somebody got killed, something terrible happened yeah. to them. And a lot of times people will say, oh, that's kind of cold that we don't have more of a feeling for that person and what happened to them. But see, really, for you to have a feeling for what happened to that person, you would first have to have a relationship with that person. Right. And some of you say, no, no, just humanity in and of itself. But part of humanity is the relationship. So it's through relationship that we develop these connections. And it's something that we have to work on, like the way the Christians talk about how you have to pray to God, you have to talk to God. And all through this path, one of the things I've been writing about is Shristi Lila. Shristi Lila is this pastime of Krishna coming to save us. You know, the Lord loves to do that. Everything for him is like, like Krishna's nature is Lila, pastimes, enjoying loving exchanges and stuff like that, right? That's what he likes to do. He's on that 24-7, right? So even when he comes to the material world to save us, that's a Leela for him. And he enjoys that Leela. But guess what? You gotta ask him for that. Mm -hmm. You have to ask Krishna, Krishna, please save me. That's, you know, when we're chanting, we're saying we want service. That's like, Krishna, please take me into the association of devotees that's serving you and loving you. Like, save me from this illusion, this mind of me thinking that I'm this material body. So it's like when we're serving Krishna, we're free from those, those propensities that come from thinking of yourself as the false ego or the material body. And we want to be saved from that. And Krishna wants to come to save. And it says in the Bhagavad Gita, for the person who, uh, you know, supplicates and asks the Lord, he's, he's, for that, that person that's devoted to him, he said he's the swift deliverer. So if we would just ask Krishna, he would deliver us from the illusion and the mind that we're in. He loves to do that. That's like his favorite pastime. Then I think I mentioned about the higher taste part. Everything is about you developing a higher taste. Like even me, with all the books, all the literature, I mean, I got a lot of stuff to read. I have a big responsibility that I put on myself about things that I want to really immerse myself in and know because I know this is some of the most important literature that's ever been on the planet. So why waste your time? Why not benefit from it while you can? And even Prabhupada said that. I was listening to this one lecture. He said, I'm laboring night and day to write these books for your benefit. Why don't you take advantage of it? And he started saying, you're taking advantage of the eating and sleeping. Mm -hmm. He said, well, why won't you take advantage of my books? He said, if I do this and then you don't take advantage of it, he said, what can I do? You know, like, I can't force you. It's like that whole thing of you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Right. So it's like, because I've known how important that is, I had, I had this other uh, lecture where he was talking about, if you got a truck, he said, this is the gas. Talking about Shramad Bhavatam. Mm -hmm. He said, this is the gas you want to put in your truck. You know, so it's hard for us to imagine that, Reading philosophy, studying Shramad Bhavatam, chanting those verses, that somehow or another that could be a food for us. But it is. It's a food for your soul. 
it takes like anything, it takes a while for you to develop and cultivate that taste. But it's a higher taste, okay? Mm. I remember one time I had one god brother. We were doing like what they call a marathon. And that's where, instead of it like being most of Bible time classes you go to, where they'll read one verse or they might read two verses, depending on how connected the verses are. And then that's it. You know, that's it for the day. Now, we would just keep on chanting verses, keep on reading the purports. If somebody wanted to ask questions, they would. And we would comment. We would just say, then we go on. Just keep on going. And we've gone a couple of mornings. We've gone maybe from like 7 o'clock, Joppa. You know, everybody had the Joppa line. Gone from 7 o'clock till maybe like 3 or 5 in the evening chanting. Shramad Bhavatam, just going through a lot of verses, reading the purports and discussing. I'm going to tell you, I didn't even feel like my feet were touching the ground. Mm. You're talking about an intoxicated, rarefied experience. But it was the food. It was the fuel. And that's where Prabhupada said we should be gassing ourselves up with. Mm -hmm. You know, That's what we should be operating on in terms of our insight and it has a lot when you read Shramad Bhavatam it has a lot of practical applications in everyday life you know all of the other material sciences came from spiritual science and one of my teachers this really really great um, theoretical physicist his name is Dan Winter I don't know if you ever come across him he the beauty of this cat is he takes the scientific terms and uses them to explain the spiritual mm. terms. He uses the spiritual terminology to define the scientific phenomena. So in using that like that, one thing explains the other. And one of the things that he said that really stuck out in my mind, he said that the climax of the physics is the spiritual lesson. So we would have never thought that a lot of things we would read like in the Nectar of Devotion or Bhagavad Gita that that's actually a scientific experiment that can be proven, you know, that you can look at, you know, this scientific experiment and see the parallel and the connection to this spiritual lesson, whether it was forgiveness, compassion, or love, all of these things is how the universe is being run, how the physics, how the science is manifested. It's not distinct. We just haven't had anybody that could show you that. Like he talked about, okay, the heart. We talk about the heart a lot in um, God consciousness and in philosophy, Sufism, Hinduism. They talk about the heart, this development of this faculty. It goes beyond the physical and becomes like a faculty in the, mm -hmm. in the whole explanation and discussion of the heart. But then he says, okay, why don't you look at the heart like this? Now, this is taking something abstract like the heart making it scientific he said it's an oscillating generator 
So then he started to talk about how they had developed equipment that could measure your stress and relaxation response based on your heart beating in a synchronization with your nervous system in such a way that little energy is lost. Like sometimes you can have it where the heart will be beating one way, then the nervous system will be beating another way. And they'd be kind of like working against each mm -hmm. other across versus you have stress. Mm -hmm. So there's a way that you can measure the synchronization of those things and then tie that in to states of prayer, tie that into being able to measure the atoms unpacking and the atoms, the way they're packing and organizing themselves and unpacking themselves, measuring that in a holy place, in a sacred place versus just a normal spot, that there was a difference. He was able to measure it. Right. So I, I, I just wanted to miss that, that that's the that's the time that we're in now where the climax of all this physics and science is going to be the spiritual lessons that we're studying every day in Krishna consciousness. Hmm. I think that's a, a good spot to wrap up our interview. I mean, there's obviously so much more we could talk about, um, but I don't want to go too long just for the for the sake of the listener. Um, but I want to thank you. It's been nice to meet you. Uh, Bhakta Swanson right. is, is your name. Right. And I'm Mike. And uh, you've been listening to Questions for the Sages. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Bhakta Swanson for sitting for this interview. Thanks to Rico Hayes for the theme music and to Miriam Lansky for discussions about how to approach the subject matter of the podcast. Thank you also to the Hare Krishna community of Potomac, Maryland for making this podcast possible. I'm Michael Scherer, and you've been listening to Questions for the Sages. Mm -hmm.